Hi, this is Paul Dennett in Sydney, Australia, and I'm with Patrick Avenal. Hey there, Paul. Welcome, everyone, to episode 14 of Bat and Ball with Pat and Paul. Today's episode is coming to you in crystal clear sound for a change. We're no longer sitting in my lounge room. We're in the beautiful studios here of Radio Hub in the suburb of Alexandria in Sydney. It's all about the T20 World Cup. Let's get on with the show. Patrick, on Friday night, I was just going for a little stroll and I happened to pop my head in at the local suburban Sydney pub that's near me. And I was taping the game between Australia and New Zealand, so I wasn't bothered. But it was just an interesting experiment. I thought, I wonder whether anyone will be watching the cricket. I knew that everyone would be watching the Friday night football. Uh, I think it was uh, Canterbury and Parramatta. Mm-hmm. But I thought, would the cricket be on on a friendless TV? And I was wrong, because the cricket wasn't even on. They had, um, on the friendless TVs, they had the A-League and the Super Rugby. No one was watching those. And about 40 people were sitting watching the Rugby League. And so I sent a tweet out to this effect. And this caused quite a lot of consternation amongst a lot of my followers who couldn't believe that the Australian people seemingly didn't care about the T20, the world T20. Um, do people in this country care about it? Well, Paul Dan, I think I think cricket fans care about it. And I think that cricket fans would have sorted out on, on Fox on the pay TV channel, but on a Friday night, cricket isn't sort of the appointment sport that you would go to the pub to watch. I don't think, especially not in, in the colder months. And we are, and it has, the weather has turned slightly in Sydney the last few weeks, but I, I think that it being relegated on free to air to a secondary channel gem in Sydney, although it was on channel nine in, uh, in the non rugby league cities, the, I, I think that has uh, had an adverse effect. And also the late TV deal meant that neither Nine nor Fox could promote that it was happening. So I think a lot of people who, who don't, perhaps don't follow cricket outside the, the domestic international season would have even known it was on. Such was the rushed uh, TV deal and then the, the quick promotion of the matches. Well, basically, once March occurs in this country, cricket kind of vanishes. It's the, the long five-month layoff that the Rugby League and Aussie Rules fans have had suddenly gets changed and um, those two sports totally dominate their respective markets. Also, tournament sport or tournament cricket in particular benefits from having that rolling day after day of coverage and of matches. Now, on Fox Sports, you can sort of totally immerse yourself in the 2020 or the World T20 from about 8.30 till 4 a.m. the next morning. But if you're only following Australia, if you're only following it on free-to-air, you're getting one match at 8.30, then Australia's next match was at 1 a.m. four days later. It's not really sure when the matches are on or, or, or how to get into the rhythm or the flow of the tournament. The interesting, the interesting thing that occurred in the pub was that um, a bloke walked in. I've seen him before. He's an Indian guy. And I thought, oh, here we go. And he went up to the bar staff. And the next thing, after much searching around, they found Fox Sports 5 or whatever it was, put it on a TV that was very crackly. And um, he was then the sole person in the pub watching it. And this is very much a pub that only acknowledges two sports. It's a very Sydney pub that there's rugby league and then at a pinch there's cricket. So I felt relatively significant that um, it just had no interest whatsoever. 
Well, the the other issue is that uh, you go into a lot of pubs these days and you ask them to put a channel on and it's difficult for the staff to change the channel. I don't know whether listeners will have had that problem trying to trying to get the support they want on. But I think you're a brave person to go into a Sydney suburban pub on a Friday night and ask them to put on something that's not rugby league. And if you're if for our Melbourne or Adelaide or Perth listeners, that would be the same if you went into a pub and asked them to turn off the Australian rules. And so this upcoming Friday when we've got Australia playing Pakistan, um, a lot of people around the world would be thinking, well, pretty much a must-win game for Australia. This will get huge interest in Australia. Um, it is going to be up against the grand final replay um, in the uh, New South Wales and Queensland uh, of the Rugby League. There's no Aussie rules up against it because for some curious reason, Victoria still doesn't schedule Aussie rules on, on Good Friday. But there is an A-League game. Um, so Western Sydney playing Melbourne victory. Um, will people watch it? I think the biggest problem that it faces is that it's not being promoted properly. I, I actually think this game has huge appeal and I'm looking forward to watching it. But Channel 9 has, you know, a vest, they're almost a servant of two masters here. They've got a vested season-long interest in promoting their flagship rugby league match. So to also promote that Australia's playing Pakistan can, can have an adverse effect on the premium product, which is on the premium channel. I think Fox Sports is doing an okay job promoting it. I, I, I know that I'll be watching the cricket. Now, the ratings for that game, you did find them. Um, they, you're, you're much more knowledgeable about ratings than I am. Um, 186,000 Australians watched it on Foxtel. Is that a good figure? Uh, it was an outstanding figure. At number two for the night behind only Fox's simulcast of the Rugby League. <laughs> and um, what was it? 357,000 on free-to-air which is a strange figure because, as you said, half the cities were watching it and half the cities had the rugby league on. Well, if you take away Sydney and Brisbane, the, the first and third biggest media markets in Australia, that, that's a really competitive figure to, to, to get. And that, that was in, the, that, I think it was number 24 the night, taking away the first and third biggest markets. Uh, obviously not enough to push rugby league onto a secondary channel because that was, I think that was the number one show of the night, but it was still a, a, you know, a, a manful effort from the non-rugby league states. So for all those on Twitter who were wondering about it, Australians, I think, are starting to care about this tournament. Um, it's still perceived as a Mickey Mouse event by a lot of people, the old classic hit and giggle. The fact that in its early incarnation, it seemed to be on every second week um, didn't help its prestige. Paul, sometimes I worry that we care about the World T20 more than the players and the coaching staff do. <laughs> well, that, that um, brings us nicely to do the Australian, does the Australian setup care about the, uh, about the World T20? I've been intrigued by a few quotes that Rod Marsh has, has made over the last few um, over the last few weeks, just before the tournament. And I went searching for a few of them today, and we're going to play a couple of them to you now. And I just think that this shows that the Australian chairman of selectors is maybe not the person that should be piloting our side, and that the priority that should be on the World T Twenty isn't there. Now, let's firstly have a listen to him talking about the the lineup for the spinners that we've got. He's talking specifically initially about Cameron Boyce being unlucky, and then. The second half of the quote is in reference to the fact that Nathan Lyon wasn't selected in, in the squad. Cameron Boyce was unlucky, but we couldn't take both of them. We were never going to take two leg spinners. Maxwell is the off-spinning uh, man for the T20, and you know, we weren't going to carry two of them. We found that out. So, Rod Marsh there, um, prior to the tournament, saying quite proudly that Australia effectively were limiting themselves to one leg spinner and one off spinner uh, for a tournament that was going to be held in India. Now, they ended up picking Ashton Agar. I suppose they could say he was a left-arm off spinner. Bats a bit as well. Yeah. But 
I, I, I just find that incredible. That, that this was a tournament that if you were in doubt, you would have picked 15 spinners for. Um, I think it's remarkable Nathan Lyon wasn't picked. Uh, I thought he had a very good summer with the red ball and the pink ball. And also bowled well when he had it when he played in the in the uh, in the big bash. I found it quite remarkable that he wasn't picked. I, don't, I probably wouldn't have picked Cameron Boyce. Obviously, Glenn Maxwell picks himself, but uh, I mean, I don't understand why people like Nathan Coulton Isle are in the side because I don't think that speed through the air is important. In, I agree in, in the subcontinent, or maybe even in big bash cricket. The the teams that are oh, in big in T Twenty cricket, the teams that are good at international T Twenty focus their their bowling on taking the pace off the ball, forcing the batsman to hit uh, hit uh, through crowded offside fields uh, with no pace on the ball. I agree, um, and I think that uh, Andrew Ty probably won't play a game in the whole in the whole tournament, and that's a, a spot that could easily have been filled by another spinner. Now, in terms of once the fifteen had been selected for the World Cup. Um, Who's going to pick the 11 for each game? Um, you'd imagine that Rod Marsh would have quite strong views on, on that. And, and this is what he said in the lead up to the tournament. I can't really answer that because I'm not the selector on duty over there. We'll have to wait and see how they're all going. Can you imagine Sir Alex Ferguson ahead of a Champions League game saying, well, I'm just not going to travel to Barcelona. I'm just going to stay at home and we'll let someone else decide the makeup of the side. Well, the problem with that, with that an- analogy is that it's, it's much worse than that. It's the equivalent of Ange Postacoglu not going to the Asian Cup or the World Cup. It, I found that 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 quote uh, blew me away when I heard that. I mean, how busy is Rod Marsh that he can't be over there to watch the the World T Twenty, the second most important tournament Australia plays in? Well, hopefully he he's got the a lot of uh, experience watching the IPL to draw upon in, in in making his decisions for for who to pick. You know, we'll be calling on uh, quite a few people uh, to give us as much information, seeing as we don't go uh, to the IPL. You know, we'll be seeking out as much information as we can we'll be seeking out as much information as we can because we don't go to the ipl is that is it only me or is that very bizarre who does he mean when he says we just the selection committee yeah sort of boggles the mind i mean i know that the ipl isn't on tv in australia which some of our indian listeners might find remarkable but it isn't on tv you can seek it out on the internet if you want but Look, I would think that seeing we know we're going to India for a World T20, it's a place where we always struggle. There are plenty of Australians playing in the in the IPL. You can send a delegation over there to watch the matches, understand the conditions. Absolutely. And I think that there is some incidental effects of that, that some of the, I think Darren Lehman has been over there in the past, but all this is, is kind of, has come uh, by way of just chance that Australian cricket is, is, you know, got oodles of financial clout. It would be absolutely unthinkable in any other sport I think that for a nation of this size to have not sent people over to, to, to this event to have looked at it in the past I, the, about 12 months out from a soccer World Cup you always see the stories about where the, the teams have based their camps it always seems to be like there's a huge impetus is put into that sort of uh, delegate that sort of setting up camp where Australia seems to sort of I, I, apparently our rival in Dharma Salah was, was uh, not particularly well planned either well, the whole tournament um, hasn't been all that well planned in terms of um, the ticketing fiascos that have occurred, the the TV rights broadcast deal that almost didn't happen, and um, I mean the pitches themselves. The the game uh, in that first game between Australia and New Zealand towards the end of the match, the ball looked like some sort of um, cheese grater had been applied to it. It was hardly befitting of a standard of tournament that's you know it's trying to rival the fifty over World Cup as the premium event in the sport. Now, final grab from Rod Marsh that we could say to Rod, look, mate. Um, 
given that you are the chairman of selectors, uh, we would hope that you are, you know, you're, you're pretty expert on the conditions that we're about to face. Now, I'm not um, particularly au okay with exactly the condition of the pitches in, in, in all parts of India, but from what I've been told... From what I've been told... They spin, what I've been told, they turn. I think Rod Marsh might think that India is on Mars and only accessible by spaceship and technology yet to be, yet to be invented. I mean, I, I didn't live through Rod Marsh's vintage, but I'm going to go on a limb and say Rod Marsh did tour India as a player. Yeah, but I think I think conditions might have changed since the, you know 1973. Um, you know, <laughs> I don't think the IPL was going very strong back then. Uh, look, Rod Marsh is a great bloke. He's um, you know renowned as a great drinker and a great guy. But I just think, and he was a very successful cricketer. But I just think maybe his time has passed as chairman of Australian selectors. Well, I, I mean, I know Mark War is on the panel. At least Mark War seems to always be where the Australian cricket team is. At least he is always on the ground because he's always in the commentary box. So I would at least trust his, uh, trust his authority over Rod at the moment. You'd almost think that maybe they chose him to be in a, as a selector because they thought we can, we can save on some money here because he'll be commentating a few games <laughs> anyway. So, <laughs> now to the tournament itself. Um, the, 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 the competition table, I'm just looking at that in front of me at the moment. and um, New Zealand, yeah. running away with it. I mean, we are... The Leicester City of World T20. Indeed. <laughs> We've just jumped to Group 2, which reflects our bias as Australians, but so be it. Um, New Zealand have qualified. They are into the semifinals. And oh, I think that's really great. I think that it would be wonderful if one day they did win um, an international uh, cricket event, and hopefully it's not this time. Uh, didn't they win the um, old Champions ICC, the Mini World Cup? In I, th- I have vivid memories of Stephen Fleming holding up a trophy once in... Zimbabwe, maybe. I'm sure they did. I'm sure they did. But I, you know, that doesn't count that anymore. Doesn't count. No, no I mean, that's right. <laughs> so, well, <laughs> there were the ICC Champions Trophy. You could imagine a, a big whiteboard with nothing on it. As I can as guarantee memory. you that Oman wasn't involved in a qualifying tournament for that. Now, um, Australia's playing Pakistan um, for a, a match that shapes as much win must win for Pakistan and probably must win for Australia. But um, Australia. <laughs> They, they still have some chance, despite the fact that they were um, be- beaten by New Zealand and fairly unimpressive against Bangladesh. I still think that they've got the side that could win this if it was in, certainly if it was in neutral conditions, I'd think they'd have a huge chance. But in Indian conditions and in Indian conditions where it seems as though um, India haven't said, let's produce pitches that are going to provide a great spectacle, but let's produce pitches that are going to help us win. It, it's going to be particularly, particularly challenging, I think. I think if Australia can learn from its mistakes in the first two games, then it, it can get out of the get a win out of the game against Pakistan, get out of the group, and and, and maybe do something in the semi final. But uh, it's the same mistakes that we see game after game after game, which is they start very strongly in, when the field is up and when uh, perhaps a fast bowler is bowling at them, and uh, Warner or Finch or Usman Khawaja, whoever the openers are, can swing their arms a bit. But as soon as the field goes back and the pace comes off the ball and spinners start operating, we don't adjust to that tedious middle over period where it's more about sort of milking six, seven runs and over than it is about trying to hit every ball out of the park. And even when chasing low totals, we don't seem to adjust to that, that you know, just play it through and try and just get it down to 30 off the last three overs. Uh, so... It'd be interesting to see against Pakistan whether that sort of repeats itself. Because even against Bangladesh, when we, we did win that game, we got ourselves into quite a bit of trouble chasing another... I'm just trying to, rustling some papers to find the scorecard. We still ended up losing 
seven wickets on our way to 157. And the scorecard, it's very familiar. Kwaja got off to a great start with 58, but then you see uh, Smith out for 14, Warner for 17, Maxwell chipped away for 26, Mitchell Marsh out for six, Hastings out for three. It's, it's that familiar, just every score is just a little bit less than the one before it. Well, we did the same thing in the, in the first game against New Zealand where um, Australia got off to a, a very good start chasing a fairly modest total and looked, looked winners for sure. And then um, they started to panic. Um, uh, Warner was out playing uh, an aggressive shot. Smith charged down the wicket and was, um, was stumped by, by a million miles. Maxwell tried to hit a six when he didn't, when he didn't need to. And it was, it was a, at that point where even in the commentary box, you could hear Tom Moody's frustration because he was sort of saying, fellas, this is not the wicket to be hitting sixes and fours on. Take a few singles, get your eye in and, 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 and wait for the opportunity rather than just um, mindlessly slogging. Yeah, Steve Smith's one was particularly disappointing. I mean, we, we've seen over the last two and a half years, once Smith is in, he looks like he'll never get out. And he was in a position in that match where he could take an over to get his eye in. He could have blocked out that over and even the next one, and they could have still won comfortably. But he seemed just determined to sort of put his mark on the match. And I, I, I was a little bit, I was very disappointed with that from the captain. I mean, it's one thing when, you know, a hide gun like Maxwell plays a shot like that. But I was very, I would have expected more from Smith leading from the front. I think it once again showed our fear of facing spin and that, as soon as the spin came on, I was celebrating the fact that New Zealand didn't bring the spinners on in the power play. I thought that those first six overs, that's the reason that we got away to such a good start. And then when the spin came on and it was really gripping and turning, uh, Australia, you know, you would almost think, well, maybe they've been playing their warm-up games in South African conditions, or maybe they've been playing um, <laughs> an extended series of uh, test matches and 50-over games against New Zealand in New Zealand. Um, it's, it's interesting to compare Mitchell Santner's uh, how he's come along, his development as an international cricketer with Ashton Agars. Mitchell Santner seems to be getting really good coaching, really good you know, advice about how to bowl in these pressure situations. And you compare that with Ashton Agar, who was brought on uh, as an opening bowler and got taken for three sixes in his first over. We didn't see him again. And we may not see him again. And it was, I, I felt very sorry for him because... You know, those first two balls were just a bit full. They stuck in that well. They, they, they floated out of the hand and he was hit out of the attack. Then, perplexingly, Smith brought him into bat before Faulkner, um, which I couldn't understand. He actually batted reasonably well. He hit a, a crucial six. He got caught on the boundary and had he cleared that a little bit, uh, just hit it a tiny bit better, that might have gone for six and we would have seen uh, potentially him playing a match-winning innings. But... Compare the tactical ineptitude, as you, you might say, of the, of the Australians to Kane Williamson in his first match of the tournament. I must say, I thought this was one of the most... Um, I think the importance of a cricket captain is some, somewhat overrated, that it's really 95% of just who's got the better players. But um, actually, there's a quote from Richie Benno about that. He's something like, um, being a cricket captain is 90% luck and 10% skill. He said, but don't try it unless you've got the skill. Um, and um, I think that Kane Williamson, seeing that the pitch was heavily favouring spin bowlers, to have the gumption to say, we're going to drop our two biggest strengths, Bolt and Southey, and play a, a load of spinners, uh, was amazing. And in what was, I think, am I right in saying that was his first match as an international captain? Yeah, it was. And, uh, you know, it's Kane Williamson, he's 25 years old, he's number one 
test batsman in the world and he goes out there and he's already proven that he's one of the best captains you're going to see as well. So the, the boy wonder strikes again. Yeah, how's everyone else's life going? <laughs> yeah, I know, he really puts everyone else's failure into perspective. <laughs> At least he only scored eight runs in that match. Uh, look, one thing I like about New Zealand cricket is how fluid and flexible they are. Australian cricket, we seem determined to let a rip. You know, always got to have a guy bowling 150 Ks in the side. You know, we lost the Ashes because we refused to play Siddle instead of, say, Mitchell Johnson. And that's sort of, that just keeps happening is that, can you imagine the Australian cricket team dropping their, their fastest bowlers in order to play more spinners? It's, it's, yeah, and not, 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 not Shane Warne either. It's, um, you know, very much, uh, I think Nathan McCullum was chosen, who's yeah. a, a, a very occasional kind of bowler. I think that, I think if you're an Australian team meeting and when they say, what are we going to do in the field? And you say anything other than, oh, let's just hit the top of off. Um, people think you're some sort of intellectual nerd and, you know, you deserve to be ostracized. <laughs> but, um, the, uh... I, look, I must say, and I love India. I, I think that um, without India, cricket would be a, a kind of a, a third-tier sport. With, with India's population and passion and love for the game, it's probably the, arguably the world's second biggest sport. But I don't like the BCCI with the way that they um, throw their weight around. And I think that by preparing a pitch against New Zealand that was heavily, heavily intended to favour India, I don't think that's right. And it must it must rank as one of the more satisfying uh, moments of my cricket watching career to see um, to have seen New Zealand beat them um, in conditions that were heavily doctored to favour them. Yeah, I, I I was happy to see New Zealand win. Uh, you know, giving giving India or the BCCI or the ICC, they all seem to be one big organisation at the moment. Some credit though. I do think that the way the tournament is playing out really justifies the qualification and the tournament uh, format. I, I do think that it's it's made every game has meant something. It, there's a lot of interest now going into these sudden death matches. Uh, only one team has uh, secured qualification. That's New Zealand for the next round. So I will give some credit. They, they have, I think for the first time in my life, they've come up with a, a cricket tournament format that seems to work. Yeah, every Australian game is one that you, you kind of have to watch because if Australia, Australia are a real chance of losing every game and every game really matters. Um, I, I wanted to... Uh, just, just pivoting from T20 to one-day international cricket for just a second, Paul. I've got a trivia question for you. Go for it. Who are the top five wicket takers in one-day international history? Well, um, I would have thought, um, I don't know, Murali. Murali is number one. Um, you might want to think about the countries that play a lot of yeah, one-day cricket. Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, um, Akram. Akram is number two. Nah. Who is Akram's best mate? The other swing bowler. Wakar Yunus. Wakar is number three. Really? Yeah. Um, uh, Chaminda Vas? Chaminda Vas, number four. And who's number five? Is this, is, is this a Bangladeshi? No. <laughs> um, number five. Um, this really took me by surprise. I'll give you a clue. He's also played the fifth most one-day internationals in history. Uh, Sanath Jasaria? Someone like that? Um, so you, I went too much on edge then. Um, he... He uh, he might be coming to the end of a very illustrious career this week. Ah, Shahid Afridi. Shahid Afridi is the fifth all-time one-day international wicket-taker. Stay tuned for the rest of the podcast because we're going to have a little bit more of a discussion about Shahid as, as the time goes by. Paul, Shahid Afridi burst onto the scene, 1996. 
when he scored 102 off 37. Apparently, he was only 16 years old at the time. <laughs> His age has been cricket's greatest running joke for the last 20 years. And if Pakistan lose to Australia, that will probably, even if they win, it still might be the end of his international career. Uh, Probably my favourite cricketer to watch over the last 20 years. Uh, Sort of one of those cricketers when he came to the crease, he always sat up. He was... He was ahead of his time with his the way he played one-day cricket, which is to try and hit every ball in the air. He really was the inverse Don Bradman in that regard. And I, I had a look back at his record today, and it's not it's not uh, it's not terrible when you think about twenty-seven tests at thirty-six point five. I thought that test average was more than than what I would have guessed at. But it's one-day cricket where he really made his name. He only averaged twenty-three point five seven, but eight thousand runs, and it was his strike rate which was around about 150 across a 20-year career, which really made his name. And my greatest Shahid Afridi memory was uh, in 2004-05, Pakistan, West Indies, Australia played the VB series. And that was was peak Afridi. He he averaged 38.5, struck at 167. He was my player of the series that year. At the time, I would have picked him, the first player picked in a world one-day international 11. And if I was picking an all-time, uh, one day international eleven. I probably would have Afridi as my twelfth man. <laughs> He's a very exciting player. There's no doubt about that. That not only the batting, but his bowling. He had that um, ridiculous quicker ball that um, seemed to come down at about a Glenn McGrath, Glenn McGrath type pace. Yeah, one of the, uh, and also just a, a crazy guy. You know, biting balls, um, biting cricket <laughs> balls, doing everything crazy as well. So um, yeah, good luck to him. It's a nice connection to the past. Nineteen ninety six seems a long time ago. It's great to have a player who's still playing from from that time. Now. One of the um, lesser good stories to come out of this World Cup has been the the recent suspension of the two Bangladeshi bowlers, um, Taskan Ahmed and Arafat Sunny. Um, now, this is a story that hasn't really um, received much traction in Australia, but over the you know in the rest of the world, especially in Bangladesh, it's it's an absolutely huge story. Uh, Patrick, have you been following it? I suspect you haven't. No, actually, this it goes to show. Uh... How, how much these stories can pass you by that I actually didn't know about this until you pointed it out to me earlier today. Well, that's the reason I didn't point it out to you until just then, because you, as a, a very knowledgeable cricket fan, I think um, were typical of me. I only found out about it um, uh, fairly recently as well, as in I saw that Bangladesh were paying about $7 to beat Australia, and I sent, sent out a, a tweet saying, this is pretty good value. And people replied, well, they've had their two best bowlers, well, two of their best bowlers banned. And I thought, didn't actually know that. So, so it shows how little, um, uh, you know, some, sometimes the, the rest of the world matters to Australians. But I think that the Tuscan Ahmed story is a really sad one. Um, and hopefully it'll have a happy ending because here's a bloke, he's only 20 and he's come from, um, you know, uh, not having any prospects of playing any form of cricket. Indeed, when he was um, tried to play his first leather ball game of cricket when he was about 12, he had to sneak out uh, against his father's wishes went and played the game. When his father found out about it, he broke a cricket bat over his back as a sign of a, a kind of a punishment, the new bat that he just bought him. But eventually he managed to get a game um, at a higher level and started just putting batsmen in hospital. Um, he is just that quick that blokes were getting um, broken fingers and broken ribs and whatever else. He's then burst into the, into the Bangladeshi side. He took the wicket of Glenn Maxwell in his first game. He took a crucial wicket in the World Cup uh, that, that uh, helped confirm Bangladesh's amazing progress into the quarterfinals and he doesn't look like he throws um you know he's not the classic uh off spinner from um you know who who just has that jerky action to me he looks quite fine he has been uh tested and it has been shown that occasionally his arm is exceeding the 15 degrees 
but I just think, what a horrible situation for a 20-year-old. I mean, I've seen the press conference of both his father and his mother in tears about what's happened to them. And now, I have a little bit of experience of this, having once been no-balled for throwing myself as a as a 17-year-old, which I think it was because the opposition umpire um, was the opposition coach was the umpire and the batsman had top edged one straight up in the air. And just as square leg was about to take it, that's when he thrust his arm out and said, no ball. But Australian was... umpires are very untrustworthy when it comes to no ball truckers as well. Paul. <laughs> well, certainly this guy was, but it was traumatic um, in, a, in a minor way that people in the school were shouting chaka chaka and all sorts of um, insults. And this is me in a suburban, you know, you know, in, in nothing to have the entire world seeing this happening to you is, is really sad. Why can't they do this well before an, a, an event of this magnitude? Why can't they say, right, um, let's look at all the bowlers of the world. They, you know, they're not bowling in a vacuum, but people can see them. Just sort of interrupt, but Bangladesh played the qualifying tournament. They played three matches in the lead up to it. How come this wasn't picked up during those matches? It was. That's when it was picked up. It was picked up against um, in the match against the Netherlands. Um, so uh, whichever way you look at it, it's unfair on someone because... This match proved to be the match that made Bangladesh qualify and the Netherlands not. Now, I've actually printed out the scorecard, which I think we've got here. And if you have a look at it, Patrick, you'll see that um, Bangladesh scored 156 and then restricted the Netherlands. Um, sorry, wrong, wrong one. Um, Bangladesh scored 153 and restricted the Netherlands to 145. So it was, it was a pretty close match. Um, and Ahmed bowled four overs and took none for 21, so quite economical. And Arafat Sunny bowled two overs and none for 10. Again, quite economical. You could say that if those two had been banned before this match, the Netherlands should have won that game, and they would have then been into the main tournament um, itself. Having not had that happen, how unfair is it on Bangladesh that now halfway through the tournament, two of their better bowlers get um, you know, ripped is out of the side? Is there a conspiracy theory that the organisers were determined to make sure Bangladesh got through? Um, no, it's the opposite. The conspiracy theory in Bangladesh is that um, this guy was too good and he was threatening India and Australia's <laughs> prospect of... Um... Well, there's that one as well. Yeah. So I just think, um, come on, uh, in the lead up to a tournament like this, any bowler who looks slightly suspect, take them away for remedial work and get it all done behind the scenes. Don't wait to the world's second biggest tournament of the world's second biggest sport um, to crucify a poor 20-year-old um, to be to be to be labelled a chucker um, and kicked out of the tournament when it could have been done in private and, and long before. The the well, the good news is that you you went on to have a successful career in podcasting. So there's always <laughs> there's always that for uh, for young Taskin to fall back on. I watched some of the Australia versus New Zealand women's T20 game the other night and Australia uh, collapsed badly. And then there was somewhat of a resurrection occurring, um, being led by Elise Perry uh, before she was out LBW. And the replay showed that the ball was was missing the stumps. Uh, The women's T20 and the men's T20 tournaments don't have DRS. Um, I think they should. And I think that the excuse that, oh, it doesn't really fit with T20 uh, doesn't wash with me. I think if you're going to take it seriously, then... uh, do it seriously. What do you reckon? Yeah, it's becoming, or, or at the start of every series now, or every tournament, we have to ask ourselves, will this one have DRS? Will it not have DRS? Because it's not, it's not uniform in cricket. And I, I was actually quite surprised to learn this one didn't have DRS. I would have thought that one unsuccessful challenge per team per innings uh, w- would have been good. It, it would have 
you know, it's important to get their decisions right. I don't think that would have uh, halted the flow too much of the game. Uh, there aren't actually that many appeals in T20. It all happens pretty quickly. It, you know, a lot of bowling isn't at the stump, so there there isn't as many LBW shouts as you see in Test cricket. Yeah, I agree. And and this is what DRS was brought in for. I mean, this match, um, Perry scored forty two out of a total of one hundred and three, and when she was dismissed, um, she was the the. The, the fifth wicket had fallen for 30. The score had then gone along to 79. So five for 30 had become five for 79. And then she was out for 42. And Australia finished up with 103. Now, the New Zealand got the runs pretty easily. So they quite probably still would have won. But had Perry been able to uh, bat the rest of the innings, Australia probably would have posted a more competitive total. That's what DRS is for. Yeah, I, it's also... There, there is still an element of video replay. Like they're still checking catches on the boundary, but I, I would have preferred it if DRS was there. I would like it if just DRS was a staple of international cricket. Absolutely. It should be that way for sure. Now, just in terms of the, the women's game, um, New Zealand uh, have, have played three and won three and are leading their group um, very impressively there. So potential for New Zealand, Quinella in the, in, the, in the men's and the women's tournament. Yeah, hopefully uh, Australia can... Uh, uh, turn it around in both the men's and women's and stop New Zealand in both. But I, I think, it, you know, it's nice to see New Zealand doing so well. It's, and it's good to see that the women's game is on TV in Australia. Yeah, um, it's, it, it has come along leaps and bounds, as we've talked about earlier in an earlier podcast, with the, the WBBL being such a huge success. And um, hopefully people are tuning into this as well. Yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's a cagier form of T20 cricket. But I found, I've, what I've seen of it, I found quite compelling. I, I was watching the, the Indian women play, and they were fantastic to watch. Yeah, it's, it's every bit as entertaining as the men's in a, just in you know, a slightly different way. Now, in terms of the, um, the DRS itself, uh, I'm just wondering if cricket can learn from another sport. It's a, a sport that's only really known in Australia, rugby league. That season has just started, and they've pioneered a new $2 million bunker, as they call it, which I think they have um, got the idea from baseball from. And so now, whenever there's a video review in that sport, rather than there being an official at the ground... It's, uh, the review is done in the bunker. And the reason that it's so successful is because the idea is we will get people who do it every single game and get really, really good at it, and they, they are the ones who will control the cameras themselves. So rather than having to uh, liaise with the director and everything else, and it's, it's all broadcast to the viewers so they get to see what they're doing, and they're incentivized to be quick. So sometimes when you see something and you know 99% this is the right answer, cricket, they agonize over that 1%. And then they do agonise over one percent for the next part of the decision, and that's when it can sometimes really bog down. This it's been really refreshing to watch them just go right, definitive. We can see that the ball's been grounded there. Moving on, it's it's very quick and it's very crisp. I think cricket could learn from that. What do you reckon? Yeah, I definitely agree. I also don't think there's any reason for the third umpire to be at the ground on a potentially forty-five degree day in the middle of nowhere when they could be sitting in an air-conditioned room with a hundred TV screens in front of them relax their mind clear to make a nice transparent decision that's correct and uh one thing that we've noticed in rugby league is that the the decisions from the video uh from the bunker the video review system i think there are better decisions and it's more transparent you understand how these decisions are being made uh, i think that the a centralized d- decision review system for cricket uh will would be, I think it would be revolutionary, but I think it would be very good. Yeah. It would also take away that last little fledgling thought of bias that when Nathan Lyon got that good call in the, in the recent Australian summer, although no, I don't think that anyone was thinking there was bias involved, had that decision come from a bunker in, in Dubai or London or somewhere, it would have just been seen. You know, if they do make a mistake, it would be seen as, okay, well, 
every now and again that's going to happen, but there's no there's no bias involved. Could also get some young young talent in in there. You know, someone like Ricky Ponting, who probably has no desire to be a proper umpire. He would be someone who would be quick on the technology, would grasp it all, would have the respect of the players, and um, just like with rugby league, they're getting some ex players to do it. I could imagine him with some crisp, clear directions, um, definitively making these making these decisions. Well, in the in the Formula One, whenever there is a, a penalty decision or a, a, a video replay that's needed to determine if one driver was at fault for a mistake, they always have a driver's representative in the stewards' room, letting making sure that the adjudicators know what it's actually like to be involved as a as a player in that position. And I think that's needed in, in cricket as well. Um, yeah, I, I think so, and I think that. Um I think this could be something they could consider, and it would possibly then throw upon uh, the possibility of umpires being able to use the review system themselves. That at the moment, um, there's a lot of people who criticise it, saying it's wrong that it's only the players who make the reviews. The hard thing would be as an umpire, um, you know, you almost would have to review everything. Potentially, you could leave the players still to have their reviews if they wanted. So, if an umpire, I think if you were going to give an LBW out, you'd have to go and check it. But you could say, right. Um, I think that's out, but uh, Ricky up there in the box, look, I'm sure he hasn't hit it. Can you just, just go straight to ball tracking? And it could be done in a, in a, you know, a very short space of time. Um, if he gave a bloke out caught behind um, because he thought, oh, there's a clear nick there, I'm giving it out. And if the batsman still said, well, actually, no, I didn't hit that, then they could still challenge it. I, I do think that we, at the moment, the umpire initiated review that we have for every wicket is the front foot no ball now. They, they're checking that every time. I would like just a camera trained on that. And as soon as the guy steps over, they ping a light to just so that we can call that straight away because that, that is the most tedious part now of, of when you watch international cricket is the batsman stands just one metre inside the rope while they check the no ball. Oh, it's hideous. It's, I agree 100%. What they should do, and this will never happen, but just speaking as an idealist, everyone in the world should just agree just to say it's fine. Um, if it's a no ball by a couple of inches, no one's going to care. I completely disagree with you about that, Paul. That, that it's impossible? No, that, that we should say that no one cares. I think you've, you've got to have a party foot behind the line. I think we should just come up with a better and quicker way of measuring it. Yeah, see, it's people like you that are going to prevent this idealistic solution from working. It'll end up like in the nets when every, no, every bowler is putting a foot over the line, if it's like that. No, the umpire still calls it, as it is now. The umpire glances down, and if it's a massive no ball, he calls it. If it's there or thereabouts, he ignores it. And so... When it then goes up to, to review, if it's a, it doesn't need to go review. But if the, if when the World Cup is determined by one of these these half no balls that the umpire decided to let go. Yeah, as I said, it's not possible because um, the world is not as um, I'll take that as your sane as I am. Um, <laughs> all right, now finally um, previews: uh, Australia versus Pakistan coming up, and then Australia playing um, against India. Um, what do you think? Can Australia win? I think Australia will beat Pakistan. I think India will beat Australia. And Australia could still potentially survive if Bangladesh that. can do us a favour by beating India. Certainly. Or if India only just beat Bangladesh, because it would then cut down to net run rate. If Australia beat Pakistan, we'd go on to four points. India would be... No, that would, that'd be on six. We, yeah, yeah, sorry. And we haven't even mentioned Group 1, but that's because we're biased Australians. But in there, West Indies are leading, followed by South Africa. So all to play for in the next couple of days. That's about it for this episode of Bat and Ball with Pat and Paul, coming to you, as I said, from the the studios here of Radio Hub and hopefully with wonderful crystal clear sound. If you want to catch up with me during the week, I'm at the underscore summer underscore game on Twitter. And Patrick? You can find me at Patrick Avenal at completepatrick.com. Speak to you next time. (laughs) 